Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, and on today's episode, my interview with Adam Grant. He is the co-author with Sheryl Sandberg of Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. One of the mistakes that I've made my whole life is when somebody was ill or facing loss, I would say, please let me know if there's anything I can do. You know, I thought that was the way that, you know, you show your willingness to be helpful, and only now do I realize how insensitive that is, because it forces the other person, it shifts the burden to them to know what they need and to be comfortable asking for it. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the smarter way to invest your money. On today's episode, we've got a great interview with Adam Grant. He's the co-author with Sheryl Sandberg of the new book, Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. Now, normally, I really try to wrangle guests to be live in the studio. But because of his crazy schedule, we really just had to do this interview on the phone. I think it was worth it. Adam is a psychologist and a professor at Wharton. And what he brought to the project with Sheryl Sandberg was that he really helped her through the early stages of her getting through the loss of her husband, the sudden tragic death of her husband, and how she managed that with her kids. And what we can learn from these experiences, that these terrible circumstances can be breeding ground for tremendous growth. So Adam Grant is really someone who I think provides a lot of inspiration. And I was so excited to talk to him. I hope you enjoy the interview. Stick around at the end. We will have a listener call. But I just want to be clear that some of the stuff we're talking about could be upsetting, especially if you've gone through some recent loss. But it really is uplifting at its core. Here's my interview with Adam Grant. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for the interview segment of the Better Off podcast. And we are so lucky to have Dr. Adam Grant, the co-author of Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. You may have heard of his co-author, whatever. She's this woman who works in the tech sector. You know, not that big a deal, Cheryl Sandberg. But Adam, we're very lucky to have you here on the Better Off podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be here. You know, I've asked to say that because I'm sort of a numbers geek, I, I was much more interested in talking to you about some of the research that went into this book. But before we start, let me begin by asking you the standard question we ask to every single guest. You ready? Ready. What's the best money decision you have made? Oh, the best one was uh, was probably buying a car in grad school. <laughs> Why? What did, they, did that? Because that did that allow you to actually get, get get to class as opposed to blowing it off? Well, class was luckily in walking distance, but it allowed me to to drive and visit my grandparents every week. Oh, what a nice guy! That's good. All right, let's get into the book. So, option B is uh, written. It, it, I mean, it's written in Sheryl Sandberg's voice about the premature death of her husband, Dave. How did you get involved in this project, Adam? Well, uh, four years ago, um, about a month after Lean In came out, my first book, Give and Take, was published, uh, and I was writing about generosity. I showed up at a conference that Cheryl and I were both speaking at, and um, her husband, Dave Goldberg, had read my book and asked me all these wonderful questions. And it was, it was clear in the first few minutes that he was just an exceedingly generous person, capped by when he invited me over for dinner with their family. A few months later, I went over for dinner, and their daughter, who was five at the time, asked me how my day was. I love that. that? I love that. I love that. By the way, like most adults don't do that when you meet them. Seriously. 
honestly. I was, I was stunned. And then their, their son, who was seven, started quoting from my book. And mm. Cheryl only told me much later that he hadn't actually read the book. <laughs> it says here in your blurb that you're a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meeting and live more generous and creative lives. So uh, how did that become your focus? Well, I, um, I think that, yeah, I've always been fascinated by how the world works. And I was interested in psychology and physics in college and quickly learned that <laughs> we knew more about physics than it. There was probably more that I would be able to contribute to psychology. And so, you know, I, I was struck by the fact that there's, there's a ton of evidence out there about, you know, how we can live more meaningful and, and rewarding lives. And a lot of it is con- collecting dust in academic journals. And I, I was really excited to, to contribute to that body of knowledge, but also share it, you know, outside of, <laughs> of academia. And, you know, I guess for, for me, the, one of the, the big moments was, like actually being in, you know, in, in psychology classes, applying the insights and finding them really useful and saying, look, like the, the kind of research that we do in social science, it's just, you know, to me, data are just learning from lots of other people's experiences at once. And we all love to learn from other people's experiences. What if we could do that in a more systematic way? So here we are. And so interesting. So you have dinner with the family, that Cheryl Sandberg's family, and you become friendly with both Cheryl and her husband, Dave Goldberg. And so what happened after that? I mean, did you did you speak at each of those company of their companies or how did the relationship form from that place? Yeah, I ended up speaking at, at Facebook and SurveyMonkey. But uh, what, the thing that, that really sort of built a friendship was uh, after that dinner, uh, Cheryl started asking me questions about gender differences in my data. And I didn't have most of the answers. So I spent the flight back to the East Coast reanalyzing a decade of my own research and was horrified by what I found about how men and women were treated differently when, you know, when they did the same helping behaviors or speaking up with ideas. Basically, men got, you know, got rewarded and celebrated, and women were often overlooked or taken for granted or, or even punished for it. And I sent the data to Cheryl, and she said, we should write about this. So we, we started writing a New York Times series together, and you know, it's, it's really hard to write with someone without becoming friends. <laughs> so right. That was... Either that or the collaboration start, sort of stops after some point, right? Exactly. So had you been exposed to this body of research around grief before Cheryl's husband died? Yeah, I'd been, um, you know, when, when you study motivation and meaning, um, you know, death is a huge part of, of meaning in life. It's It's part of where people lose meaning often. But yeah, there are, there are a lot of experts who believe that it's also a source of meaning, that you know, if people live forever, life would, would lose a lot of its, its value and preciousness to people. And uh, I actually wrote a whole paper about um, how awareness of mortality affects our, our meaning and motivation uh, about 10 years ago. And I'd, I'd also studied how companies could do a better job supporting people who had gone through um, a loss or serious illness or, or other adversity. And so... Um, this was uh, a lot of the the research was pretty familiar to me going in. Considering that death and illness is ubiquitous, why are we so fearful of it? Well, I don't know that anybody really knows the answer to that. I think that you know, a lot for a lot of people, um, it, it it's a source of terror because it means an end to existence, and they don't know what comes after it. Um, and I think the, the uncertainty, the unknown, um, is, is frightening to a lot of people. And then, you know, I think there are a lot of people who, who really enjoy their lives. Um, and generally speaking, we don't want good things to end. 
One of the things that I, I find interesting in the book, and you, you, you lay this out in the introduction, but throughout the book that that you and Cheryl Sandberg co-wrote, Option B, you kind of talk not just about resilience, but that often when we go through these horrible experiences, there is a big growth spurt, uh, an emotional growth spurt. In your experience, do you think that happens just for having gone through that? Or do you think you really have to work through it and have either professional help or friends, family, clergy help you find that growth spurt? I think, I think it can go both ways. We know that everyone grieves in their own way, in their own time. And, you know, for me, one of the big surprises uh, was, you know, at, originally I thought, look, you know, you go through something really horrible and there are two possibilities. One is that you're broken by it. You end up with PTSD, crippling anxiety, debilitating depression. And the other was that you bounce back and sort of get to where you were before, and that's what resilience is. But psychologists have found, actually, there's, there's a third trajectory, which is called post-traumatic growth. And that's about not just bouncing back, but bouncing forward. Now, that's not to say that people's lives are improved overall by, you know, by tragedy. Um, you know, oftentimes, there's, there's ongoing sadness, and people feel that, you know, net, their lives are worse. But they also experience positive changes as a result of adversity. A lot of people feel, you know, I'm, I'm stronger because of this. If I got through this, I can get through almost anything. Many people walk away with a, a deeper sense of gratitude, um, you know, knowing how, how fragile life is. They appreciate it more. And, you know, we, we think that there's such a thing as pre-traumatic growth, which is, you know, saying, can you, can you experience those, you know, those forms of progress without having to go through the tragedy? And we, we saw an interesting example of it, which is one of Cheryl's friends, uh, you know, was grieving over the loss of Dave and said one of the things that, that Dave uh, most inspired her to do was to be a better friend. And so every time one of her friends has a birthday, she writes a letter to them now about how much she appreciates them. And that's her way of, you know, both honoring Dave's memory, but also bringing gratitude into her life on a regular basis. I love that. And a friend of hers started doing the same thing. That friend didn't know Dave and hadn't faced the tragedy. And so to me, that's an example of pre-traumatic growth. And I think it is possible to learn these lessons about resilience without having to go through suffering yourself. When you go through one of these horrible experiences, what do you think is the difference between the person who's able to be resilient, right? The the one who kind of comes through it or experiences that growth and the person who can't? Is there some clue as to how we can help our, our friends, our family, ourselves be part of the resilient group? Yeah, so, I mean, support systems are obviously huge. And, you know, one of the things that, that happens is people go through adversity and, you know, they're, they're in pain from whatever they've experienced. But then there's also this isolation. People don't know what to say and then they're, they're afraid of bringing it up as if they're going to remind you. Like, you, you can't actually remind someone they have cancer. They know that, mm. right? So, it, you know, it just it pushes them away if you don't ask them how they're doing today. Um, and I think that, you know, providing, providing support is a huge thing that we can do for others. Um, one of the mistakes that I've made my whole life is when somebody was ill or facing loss, I would say, please let me know if there's anything I can do. You know, I thought that was the way that, that you know, you show your willingness to be helpful. And only now do I realize how insensitive that, that is because it forces the other person, it shifts the burden to them to know what they need and to be comfortable asking for it. And so, you know, I think if we want to help others build resilience, one of the best things we can do is we can, instead of offering anything, we can just do something. 
Yeah, and I think that that idea of shifting the the burden to the person who's going through it is really important. It sounds like when Cheryl was going through the aftermath, she was sort of surprised, not just that, you know, people, you know, were like, how are you, or didn't even talk to her, but that she even was pretty self-evolved to say, like, oh, my God, I used to do the same thing. Yeah, I think, you know, it's... <laughs> it's really easy to, you know, to recognize these mistakes once other people make them. And I think that, you know, another, another thing that we were, we were really struck by is how easy it is to get caught in these thinking traps that get in the way of resilience. Uh, so psychologists call them the three Ps, and they have a, a ton of evidence behind them. Um, when something bad happens in our lives, we tend to personalize it. It's all my fault. We think it's pervasive. It's going to ruin every part of my life, and it feels permanent. This is going to be horrible forever. It's like the reverse of that song, Everything is Awesome. Everything is awful. Mm. And, you know, part of resilience is actually learning to avoid those traps and saying, you know what, not everything that happens to us happens because of us. And just because it feels horrible today does not mean I will feel the same way in three months or a year. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. I'll get back to my interview with Adam Grant, the co-author of Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. But one thing that became very clear as I was interviewing Adam, and that is people have rich, full lives. There is often no time to deal with the things that seem, I don't know, let's say the to-do list, the the things that you know are important, but they're not as important as helping your kids figure out how to face adversity or how you get through some tough time. And as a result, we let things slide. What's really good is if you can figure out how to deal with those to-do list items without driving yourself crazy so you have more time to focus on this really important stuff. And you know what? I think our sponsor, Betterment, believes that It has a quintessential solution for smart people who just don't want to be involved in the day-to-day decisions of how to manage their financial lives. Betterment has technology that helps you plan for the future and manage your investments intelligently. Betterment also pays special attention to lowering fees and minimizing taxes, globally diversified portfolio management, automatic rebalancing tax efficiency. Betterment's also a fiduciary. And for those who have more complex finances, or maybe you just want someone to talk to, Betterment offers two additional service plans that give you access to a team of CFP professionals and licensed financial experts. Don't waste your time and money spinning out of control. Focus on the things that matter most. Sign up through our podcast link and you can get one month managed free. Visit betterment.com slash better off for the offer and more information. And now back to my interview with Adam Grant. Do you think that, you know, I think a lot of Cheryl's motivation around the the kids, can you talk a little bit about resilience in not just the adults who are going through this, but the children? I mean, in a weird way, I always have this struggle like, oh, you know, the illness, everyone sort of gets used to this idea. They know it's happening. The suddenness, it's sort of like, well, no one suffered in them, but it was so sudden that it's really hard for the those who are left grieving. How do you build the resilience in the kids who have to go through that? One of, one of the biggest things I've learned is that for kids, a, a driver of their resilience is knowing that they matter. Mattering is, is the belief that other people notice you, care about you, and rely on you. Um, you know, that you have real significance to other people. 
And I think that this is something that every parent can, you know, can teach to their children. I think that it matters for all kinds of adversity, right? Not just the, the really major life-altering events, but, you know, failing a test and forgetting your lines in the school play, not making the sports team. And, you know, I think that, that most parents are pretty aware of how important it is to notice their kids and show them that they care. But we all, myself included, we, we tend to do a worse job at relying on our kids. So next time you face adversity as a parent, asking your kids, hey, here's a situation I'm facing. What would you suggest I do? Mm. Showing that you value their advice and giving them a chance to think through how they would solve it, that really prepares them for dealing with difficulties of their own. What's your feeling about with an illness, um, the way and when you tell your kids? I'm just thinking about this that, you know, there's there in the past, I know there are many families like someone gets diagnosed with cancer and they kind of want to hide that information. What's what's your feeling about that and, and when it's appropriate to start talking to kids about things that happen like that? I don't know if there's a right answer. You know, I think it certainly depends on, you know, the family, the circumstances, um, the age of the children and their personalities. I think that, though, you know, it's, it's hard to make a case for, you know, for hiding uh, some kind of serious adversity indefinitely. Because, you know, kids are pretty observant, and mm. odds are at some point they'll, they'll pick up on the fact that something is wrong. And, you know, it also it just it takes a ton of energy to suppress emotions. Mm. Um, I think, of course, you know, when, when kids are younger, they, they need simpler explanations. Um, but, you know, I think that, that having those conversations openly, one of the things it can do is it can help to, to normalize struggle. Um, this is, this is uh, one of the great points in Julie Lithcott Hames's book, How to Raise an Adult. She says, look, like part, of, part of resilience is teaching kids that struggle is normal. It's not something that you have to hide. It's something we all face. And you know, I think that, that that's something we all need to communicate. And you know, maybe there's a time and a place to do it. But I think it's, uh, it's something that every parent has to accomplish. All right. I want to just go to one other piece before I promise to let you go. The book is called Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience. And then the last part is And Finding Joy. And I I have pressed some psychologists about this because sometimes I feel like we hold this idea up like you have to be joyful. You have to be happy. There are whole practices of psychologists who are talking about happiness. And sometimes I feel like that becomes such a high bar. Can you talk a little bit about you know, how you would think about joy and how how we can sort of grab onto that possibility without making it like the ultimate goal of every single day? Well, I think that, you know, I, I often thought of joy as frivolous before we started this project, right? That like, yeah, moments of joy, they're fleeting. You know, maybe they contribute to your long-term happiness, but I'd much rather focus on meaning. And I could not have been more wrong because it turns out that moments of joy don't just give us happiness. They actually give us strength. They remind us of why life is worth living, and they give us hope that, you know, things might improve in the future when, you know, when it feels like they won't. And one of the, the most surprising studies to me actually showed that if you just write down three moments of joy every day, you feel happier and stronger over the, the next few months. And this habit of noticing is really important because we tend to be wired to focus on the negative. Um, you know, like in prehistoric times, you're wa- imagine you're walking through the jungle and it would not be that helpful if you were like, hmm, yeah, that, I see something moving. It's orange. It seems to have black stripes. How interesting. <laughs> right? You want to have the reaction of, tiger, run! <laughs> right. And then you will live another day, right? Right. And, 
you know, because of those life and death situations, we, we tend to just zero in on threats of all kind. And I think that noticing those small moments of joy, it resets our attention and it reminds us to, to focus on the good that does exist in our lives. Although I will say that like that part when you um, the the idea when you bring it up to Cheryl about like focusing on like it could have been worse. It's like so very it's so very Jewish New York to me because I am a Jew from New York. And and, you know, I, I, I literally remember my grandfather saying, like, well, it could have been worse. And you're like, really? How? Like, this is horrible. But, you know, sometimes doing that can walk you back from the edge a little bit. Right. It is one of the I mean, it's one of the most reliable ways to find gratitude is to imagine how things could be worse. And it's counterintuitive to a lot of people, um, especially people who are not Jewish New Yorkers, right? <laughs> who are like, wait, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to think positive. But actually, when you imagine things being worse, it reminds you to appreciate what's, you know, what's there. Okay, and, I'm going to give you something that's great that you can use. You don't even have to credit me. Bring right? it on. Okay. Do you ever hear about the Bulgarian optimist and the Bulgarian pessimist? No, but I'm ready. Okay. So when you lived in Bulgaria, say in the 20th century, uh, you lived under various horrible regimes and terrible things happened to you throughout decades and decades of rulers, right? So there's an old joke among Bulgarians that, uh, oh, you know, you hear about the Bulgarian pessimist meets the Bulgarian optimist and they meet in the street. And the Bulgarian pessimist says, oh, things can't get worse. And the optimist says, yes, things can get worse. See, that's a way to use it. I it can. Like, you can get worse and be appreciative that, you know what? It's not at the worst yet. So today, I'm just going to take that. I'm going to take that and like my little glimpse of the optimist and the pessimist. Adam Grant is the co-author of Option B with Sheryl Sandberg, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. Before we let you go, here's a way you might have built resilience. Tell us the worst money decision you've made. Well, that one is easy. I was teaching my first class at Wharton. It was 2009. A student came to my office and said, I want to start a company to sell glasses online, and I wondered if you might want to invest in it. And I, I thought it was ridiculous. Nobody would ever order glasses online. So I declined the investment. And now Warby Parker is worth over a billion dollars. And my wife is really pissed at me. <laughs> All right. That's a little bit of regret. But I'm sure you found resilience in it. Adam Grant, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Take care. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Time for our favorite part of the show. It's the caller question. If you have a financial question, just shoot us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Mark will arrange to get you on the air live. Right now, we're going to Tyler from Minnesota. So what's going on? How can I help you out? So I have a question about um, whole life insurance specifically. Okay. Um, so basically... I, my uh, financial advisor, um, he recommended it to me, mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure if he was a fiduciary, and so I wanted to ask you about it, I guess. Okay. So um, tell me about yourself. How old are you? I am 22. Mm-hmm. I am a full-time software developer. Okay. I don't have any loans, student, or car. Woof. Um, my salary's just under 70000 Okay. I uh, have a 401k. Uh, I put in currently like 6% uh, 
and my company in in five months from now they'll start matching four and a half percent. That's pretty good. Uh, so at seventy grand, putting away six percent, how's your cash flow? Do you, are you living home? Do you have your own place? What's going on? Uh, I have uh, my own apartment. Um, it currently rent is about. Uh, I guess with the car and utilities is like fourteen hundred a month. Wait a minute. So, Hold on a second. You're telling me your rent, your car, and utilities is fourteen hundred dollars a month, right? Yeah, that's cheap. What about food? You got to you got to eat. I uh, generally spend three to four hundred a month on food. All right. So, like, let's just say you're spending two grand a month to live, right? Yep. Okay. I'm moving to Minnesota, Mark, right now. I want I want that. Uh, okay. Next, tell me about this policy that this person sold you. Sure. Uh, it the total like base amount seven hundred and fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. The yearly premium is uh, sixty five hundred. Okay. Uh, it's with Guardian Life. I don't know if you've heard or familiar with them. Yep. Um, and then I kind of figured it out, but when the guaranteed like cash. Uh, value will be greater than the premium is 24 years Ugh. but that's just the very that's the very base amount with no um they they give out dividends and other like i don't know there's a bunch of other things when did you buy this policy tyler uh october mm-hmm. i believe so you want the good news or the bad news both i start with the bad news the bad okay. news is that you don't need this insurance you're, unless you're going to tell me you have a child that you have not disclosed yet. Do you have a child? No. Do you have a spouse? No. Okay. Uh, so here's what happened. The person who sold you this is not a fiduciary because buying this insurance policy was not in your best interest. It was in the best interest of the guy who sold it to you. That's, that's for sure because he made a nice fat commission on it. And the... The issue here is that you have absolutely no need for life insurance at this stage in your life. The other reason why he may have said you should buy this is that, well, you're buying something that gives you tax deferral and it will grow over time. But I would suggest to you that's exactly what you get with your 401k. And you're only putting 6% into this, into your 401k, and you could be putting more because, remember, the limit is $18,000 a year. So there is absolutely no reason that you should buy, you should have bought this policy, and there's no reason to keep this policy. So that's the good news in many respects, because we're going to stop the bleeding. Here's the bad news. It's going to cost you to get out of this sucker. So there is probably a surrender charge that will be applied. Pay it, get out, and never go back to this financial advisor again. Okay. You feel, you're okay with this? Like, I'm, I just gave you, like, some bad news, but I'm going to tell you the good news is that once you're out of this policy, and like I said, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg to get out, but get out anyway, the next thing you're going to do is instead of putting $6,500 in this crappy policy, you're going to redirect that money and you're going to bump up your 401k. Okay. So instead of putting 6% into your 401k, you're going to end up putting 15% into your 401k. Okay. There is absolutely no need. You have no insurance need. You don't have a big, bad tax liability at your current income level. And you bought a policy that is incredibly expensive. So there was absolutely no need. And to the answer as to whether or not 
this person is a fiduciary? I think the answer is clear. The answer is no. Okay, I I actually did text him last night. Yeah. Um, and he, I don't, I don't, still don't know the difference between them. He said he just, I don't know if he just got it or, or what. If like, I don't know when he sold me the policies he was, but he's a series six and a sixty three. Right. And he's working on a sixty five right now. Okay. I don't know what. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what those are. Those are securities licenses. Series 6, 63, and 65 basically give you uh, permission to sell uh, various kinds of products to the public. It means that you, and by the way, uh, the 65 is an investment advisor, 63 I think is state, and one is insurance and or mutual fund. I can't remember which is which, but these are not hard tests. They're the base level of tests you take. So he is definitely not, absolutely, positively, he's not a CFP. He is not any, he's not held to a fiduciary standard. And the reason I know that, Tyler, is that he sold you something you don't need and you, he sold you something that was not in your best interest. It's perfectly appropriate to go out and sell stuff to the public with all those licenses. But when you're a fiduciary, number one, you've got to say to the client, hey, Tyler, I'm telling you to buy this life insurance policy. It's probably, it's not in your, like, it's not the cheapest thing that you can do. But here's why I think you should do it. And by the way, here's how much money I, I'm going to make if you do this versus put money into your 401k. Makes sense. All right, man. Go get out of that policy and crank up the 401k contribution and um, let us know how it goes. If the if the salesman gives you any guff, let me know. We'll get him on the air live with me and he can debate why he gave you that advice. All right. Sounds good. Good luck. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Thank you, Jill. That's another episode in the books. Thanks again to our guest, Adam Grant, the co-author of Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag BetterOff. You can also reach me via email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.